please remain standing for the reading of God's word, which can be found this morning in Hosea, chapter 5, verse 11. You can turn there in your Bibles. And if you are using a pew Bible, it can be found on page 754. Beginning in verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria, and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you, or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you this morning, and uh, we're starting off a new sermon series uh, this morning called Lent to Life, as the banner uh, behind me uh, signifies, and as Pastor Greg has already mentioned, this is uh, our season of Lent, this is the season of Lent, and the season of Lent, historically for the church, has been a reminder of the counterintuitive gospel promise that the pathway to life is through death that we find our self-fulfillment through self-denial and that we gain our lives by losing them. This is everything that Jesus taught us. It's not the way that the world teaches us to think, but it's the way that Jesus teaches us to think. And Lent specifically is a, a reminder of these counterintuitive realities about how we find life. So over the next uh, five weeks, uh, including today, all through the Sundays of Lent, we're going to be exploring these counterintuitive Gospel Lenten pairings, repentance and repair, fasting and feasting, humility and unity, withholding and beholding, love and love, and how each of the first realities makes way and produces the second reality. Now, traditionally, uh, the Lenten season uh, the rhythm of Lent calls for a Lenten posture during the week, Monday through Saturday. And then Sunday has always been understood by the church as a, as a little Easter. It's a, it's a feast day. And so uh, that's true through Lent as well. So the Lenten posture uh, of repentance that we're talking about today uh, moves Monday through Saturday, as it were. And then as we move into Sunday... Uh, we transition in Sunday from repentance to repair, or from fasting to feasting, or from humility to unity. And so 
in our, in our Sunday services, we're going to be celebrating, uh, introducing the service, as, as Pastor Greg was saying, with the Lenten posture, but then during the, the sermon and then what follows, transitioning uh, to the life aspect of Lent. And so we're going to be uh, celebrating communion, not only today, because it's our first Sunday of the month, but every Sunday through Lent, we'll be celebrating a communion together to mark the feasting that comes from the Lenten posture throughout the week. So uh, we're going to be taking communion uh, every uh, Sunday throughout Lent here. And also we've adjusted the service a bit so that the sermon takes place earlier in the service. So if you normally come to church at this time and you like are like, it's okay because I, I don't mind missing some of the worship, Greg is insulted by that. Uh, but then you're going to miss some of the sermon too. So uh, we'll be starting the sermons earlier uh, in the service throughout Lent so that we have more time after the sermon than to celebrate and to feast on Jesus. So when I get done preaching, don't get up and walk out because there's more to come. The most important part to come is what follows after uh, the sermon. All right. So our sermon today is from Hosea uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 11 uh, through 6, 3. And I want to say just a few points of context before we get into our text this morning, a historical point of context so you know where you are in the story of Israel. We're looking at Israel's story. And then a theological point of context. So first, the historical point of context. The book of Hosea is written, was written as an indictment against Israel because of her unrepentant sin. It was written just prior to the fall of Israel, God had sent in uh, the nation of Assyria, Assyria and then later the nation of Babylon to bring judgment upon Israel because of her sin. So this is written just before the exile uh, takes place, the invasion of Assyria because of Israel's sin. So in the first three chapters of the book of Hosea, God compares the nation of Israel to a wayward wife, a wife who has been unfaithful to him. God has bound Israel together to him in a, in a solemn covenant, and Israel has not been faithful to that covenant and has been cheating on God, as it were, with the pagan gods of the surrounding nations. And that has led, that, that spiritual unfaithfulness has led to a lot of dismay and corruption within the nation. So turn just back a chapter or two there in your Bibles. Hosea chapter 4 has a nice summary, verses 1 through 3 of Hosea chapter 4, has a nice summary of the condition of Israel at the time that Hosea is writing. Chapter, th uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So Israel has been living in unfaithfulness to God and now the land is filled with mourning. Things are not going well for the nation of Israel. So that's the historical context of where we're at uh, in Israel's story. The second point I want to clarify, though, is a, is a theological point of context or clarification related to the term repentance because the theme this morning's, uh, this morning's sermon is going to be about uh, the theme of repentance. I want to make sure we understand it. The word repentance quite literally means a change of mind. So that's the 
formal way that it's used or a technical way that it's used within the scriptures. It's the way that's used uh, in the broader uh, ancient world. And repentance is if you're going one way and then you realize it's the wrong way and you change your mind about the way that you were going and you begin going a different way. So we change our mind, we repent, and we start going in another way. We can see how this would have application then to the life of faith and with God. Now, sometimes the term repentance gets used with reference to a Christian's honest and sincere struggle against sin. That's not how I'm using it this morning. So if you are trapped in a pattern of sin, and I think all of us as Christians, we've We've experienced this at various points in our Christian life. If we've been a Christian long enough, we know what it is to come up against a sin that we just can't seem to get past. Right? And if that's you this morning, you're trapped in a pattern of sin, and you know that it's a pattern of sin, and you are genuinely, genuinely trying to overcome that pattern of sin, and you are truly asking for God, by his grace, to help you, and you're doing everything that you know that God wants you to do, all the prescribed things that God wants you to do, you're doing the best that you know how, then what you need is more grace for obedience. You need to stop sinning and keep growing in your capacities of faith, but you don't need to repent, per se, because you've already agreed with God. You've already changed your mind. You already agree with God about how you should live, and you're already striving to walk with him in obedience, and you're already trying to do everything that he's asking you to do. So there's a difference between the need to confess. We always need to confess our sins, even if we're struggling against sin and we are stuck in that pattern of sin. We're always going to need to confess our sins. But when we find ourselves in a pattern of sin that we have already repented of, we've already repented and recognized our need for God, we don't need to repent every time and, and have a, uh, a change of mind, as it were. The term repentance applies to when we know God is asking something of us, but we are willfully refusing to comply. So Hosea's message is a message of repentance to wayward Israel to beware the Lord's rod of discipline. And it's an important message, and it very likely, I, I, I presume that it is a message for some people here this morning. Because Some people here this morning know what God wants from them. And you're not just struggling against sin. You are willfully refusing to follow God into the path that he's asking you to, to walk. So this is an important message, but it's not a message for everybody who is struggling with sin. Because the Lord's rod of discipline that we're going to see here in a moment in this text is, is not for those who are sincerely struggling against sin and have genuinely repented and have turned to the Lord and are trying to walk in his ways. It's, it's, a, it's a rod of discipline for those who are willfully refusing to hearken to God's call. All right, so now with that too long of an introduction, let's get into our text here in verse 11 of chapter 5. This sermon's going to be in four parts, four things that we need to know in order to repent, all right? So here's the first thing that we see in verse 11, and it's this, sin carries its own reward. Sin carries its own reward. 
Hosea describes Ephraim, this Ephraim's another name for Israel, so it's used interchangeably. Hosea describes Israel in verse 11 as oppressed and crushed in judgment. And look at why Ephraim is oppressed. Ephraim is oppressed because he was determined to go after filth. Ephraim should have been following after God and walking in God's ways, but instead, Israel has been determined to chase after the things that can never satisfy. And there's consequences with that, as we see in verse 13. We read that Ephraim is sick, which makes sense, because if you're eating filth, eventually you will get sick. So there's no surprise there. That's why Hosea writes in chapter 8, verse 7, that if you sow to the wind you reap the whirlwind, and this is Israel's experience. And I want us to note that, it, that here, this sickness that Israel is experiencing is before the judgment of exile. Israel is suffering from the natural consequences of their actions, quite apart from God lifting a finger in disciplinary judgment. So this is like the teen that throws a drinking party when his parents are out of town, and the next morning, he wakes up with a raging headache. He's got a big bruise on the knot of his head. The house is trashed, and the cat is in the microwave. <laughs> and now some of you are all bothered by the cat being in the microwave. The cat was not dead in the microwave. It was just stuck in the microwave. And it's an analogy anyway. There was no cat, and there was no microwave. So everyone just, <laughs> just relax. And besides, it was only a cat. All right. So in any case, in any case, this teen is suffering the natural consequences of his actions, and mom and dad haven't even come home yet. Right, so there are natural consequences with our sins. And that's Israel's condition. They've been eating filth, and they've made themselves sick. And I want to emphasize with this point the simple but often overlooked observation that sin carries its own reward. Because I think if we miss this point, or we're not clear on this point, we're not going to be clear about the nature of sin, and then we're not going to be clear about the nature of repentance. I want to take a moment here to think about the nature of sin. What makes a sin a sin? How do we define the term sin? I remember uh, being in Bible college, and the definition of sin uh, that I was given at one point in one of my classes was that sin is anything that is contrary, or any action or thought that is contrary to God's will. I think that's a true definition, but I think more needs to be said. Because what is God's will? Why is God's will God's will? Why does God give the rules that he gives? God's rules, I think, can be helpfully understood. The motivation behind his rules can be helpfully understood if we think about analogously the way that parents make rules for their children. So think with me for a moment about why parents make rules for their children. I think there are basically three types of rules that parents make for their children. There's rules related to actions that have immediate natural consequences. So rules like don't touch the hot stove, don't jump off the garage roof, which would be typically rules you would only need to give to your boys, or don't stick a fork in the wall outlet, also a rule probably only for boys. In fact, probably all of these 
type one rules are mostly for boys because girls are more sensible than boys. But these are the rules that if not followed will result in immediate harm. All right, so that's the first type of rules. Then there's a second type of rules that are related to actions that are very likely to have potential natural consequences. So rules like look both ways before you cross the street and brush your teeth each night and eat your vegetables. All right, so it's possible that you could cross the street without looking 20 times and not have anything bad happen. But it's also very likely that if you continue in that pattern of behavior, something bad will happen. All right, so these are rules that, if not followed, will quite likely result in eventual natural harm. Maybe not right away, maybe not every time, but eventually. And then there's a third type of rules. These are rules related to actions that have no natural consequences whatsoever, but are based on the arbitrary personal preferences of the parent. So put the forks on the right side of the table when you're setting the table. Don't wear your hat to the table. Put your toothpaste tube in the left-hand cabinet when you're done. And these are rules that, if not followed, will have no natural consequences beyond the parental displeasure or discipline that your parent brings for not following those rules. Now, when kids are little, they don't have any capacity to recognize the difference between these three types of rules, which is why parents often end up saying to all of the rules to little kids, because I said so. Right? Because you try to explain to little kids why you can't run in the street and why you need to brush your teeth and, and why you need to put your shoes on this part of the carpet over here, not this part. Like it's too, they don't have the capacity to understand, so you just say, because I said so. It's just simply not possible to explain to a five-year-old in a way that they can understand why they need to brush their teeth every night before bed. But what can happen, especially as we hit our teen years, is that we begin to suspect that all of our parents' rules fall into this third category, that there really is no basis for our parents' rules beyond because I'm your parent and I said so. Teens, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you're with me. Right? It's just the parents trying to keep the little man down. And we begin to suspect that disobeying our parents' rules won't have any true natural consequences and that the parental rules are all just a power game of personal preferences and that whoever is in the power position gets to impose their will upon those who are weaker. And then sometimes, as we move into the adult world, we begin to carry that same mentality into the way that we think about God's rules. We begin to suspect that the only thing that makes a sin a sin is that it's contrary to God's will. That there isn't any justification for God's rules beyond, because I'm God and I said so. That it's all just a big divine power game of God imposing his personal preferences on humanity because he can. But that's to miss the whole point of God's rules and the nature of sin. And it's also to misunderstand why God calls us to repentance. Because putting your fork on the wrong side of the plate isn't the same thing as putting your fork into the wall outlet. The definition of sin as something contrary to God's will is true, but it's not sufficient. What makes a sin a sin is most ultimately when a thought or an action is contrary to human health or well-being. 
So if we want to talk about sin as something contrary to God's will, then we need to add that God's will is human flourishing because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And that's the entire basis of his rules. Why do we make rules as parents for our children? It's not just some big power trip, at least in the best versions of our parenting. Right? It's because we want what's best for our children. And we're doing the best that we know how to give them guidelines that will bring them into a path of blessing. And that's how God makes his rules. God's rules aren't for his sake. He doesn't need the rules. They're for our sake. He understands the natural consequences of the world that he has made. And he understands how we should live in the world that he has made. He understands what will be in our best interest. And so when he tells Israel here in our text to stop worshiping other gods, or when he tells all of humanity, as he tells in the Ten Commandments, to not commit adultery and don't steal and to don't lie, it's the moral equivalent of God saying, don't touch the stove. As my old pastor used to say, when God says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself because he knows the natural consequences of our actions, whether the consequences will be immediate or whether the consequences will be eventual. And his rules are warnings, not first and foremost so much about what he will do to us if we persist in sin, but about what we will do to ourselves if we persist in sin. When we sin, we are damaging ourselves and we are damaging the world around us. And when God calls us to repentance, he's calling us to live according to how he's made us to live in the world that he has made for our good. So the first truth that we need to know about repentance is that sin carries its own reward. And that leads to our second point. Sin damages us beyond the world's capacity to repair. Look here at verse 13. Israel has been running around with all the pagan gods. They've made themselves sick on the pagan filth. And then in their sickness, look what they try to do. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or to heal your wound. Israel made themselves sick from sin and they wounded themselves. And then in their pain, they turned to Assyria and its great king. Assyria is the, the reigning empire of their day. It's the, the kind of the pinnacle of society, as it were. And so Israel foolishly thought that they could find relief from their wounds by turning to the very thing that had caused the wounds in the first place because it was their spiritual apostasy and chasing after the foreign gods of the pagan nations that had made them sick. And here they were trying to heal themselves from their wound by drinking from the same filthy well. It's like the teen, the drunk teen, asking his older friend who buys beer for him to help him with his drinking problem. There's no hope down that road. And that's pretty much the Bible's whole message about sin from cover to cover. The opening pages of the Bible in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 begin with the story of how humanity turned away from God 
and God's law and tried to find life in the world that God had made rather than finding life in God. And then, just like Israel, how falling into shame and decay and death and seeing their shame and decay and death tried them to find healing from the sin of idolatry through more idolatry. And that's how we live our lives today. We try to find healing from our idolatry of the world by looking to the world. But try as we might to educate ourselves by the world's best learning and to avail ourselves by the world's best technologies and to submit ourselves to the world's best therapies, we haven't been able since the beginning of human history to figure out how to heal ourselves from our mortal wound. And our world is still racked by greed and violence and murder and hatred and prejudice and exploitation. And we see the ravages of war all throughout history. We're seeing it now again in Europe. And if Christianity has one foundational indictment against the world, it's this. Like Israel of old, we have given ourselves a mortal wound by turning away from God to the world. And then in our woundedness, we have looked to the world to save us. But God have mercy on us. The world can't save us. And it can't save us because the world itself is dying. And it's dying because we've killed it. We need to stop looking to the world to save us from our wounds. And we need to look to God to save us from our wounds. So the first truth about repentance is that sin carries its own reward. And the second truth is that sin damages us beyond the world's capacity to repair. And those are both pretty bleak truths. But that leads to the third truth, which is, though also seemingly bleak, is really the beginning of hope, the beginning of God's love. And that's God's judgment. Verses 14 then in, uh, through 15, we read, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, I will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Up until this point in our passage, we haven't seen any active judgment from God. Israel has been reeling from the natural consequences of its sin, and God has been waiting and he has been watching for Israel to learn its lesson primarily through the natural consequences, the natural judgments that come through their sin. And God has been sending prophets to warn the people and to turn them back. But Israel is not learning its lesson. It's continuing to look away from God and its pattern of self-harm is just going deeper and deeper and deeper. And so at last, here, God is stepping in with the divine rod of judgment. God says that he will become like a lion to Israel. Just like a lion tears his prey and carries it away, so too God is sending Assyria to tear Israel and to carry it away into captivity. And it's important to note here that God does not tear like a lion because he is capricious and angry that his personal preferences are not being respected. He tears like a lion so that Israel will seek him 
and cease from their sin and their self-harm so that they will seek him and find him to be the only source of life. And it works. We continue reading on the history of the nation of Israel, the invasion of Assyria, and then the subsequent invasion of Babylon into the southern kingdoms, and then the exile that follows, finally break the power of Israel's idolatry. From the time that they were constituted as a nation, way back with the giving of the law, idolatry has continually plagued them. And it plagues them all the way through, even the days of David, who was a righteous king, the days of Solomon and on. But finally, with the judgment of exile, the idolatry, the sin of idolatry is broken. And after they come back from exile, they are free from the sin of pagan idolatry. They have some other sins that they'll still need to work on, but, but the idolatry, of the pagan idolatry and worshiping other gods is not one of the sins. So this judgment then turns them back to the Lord. So listen, God is long-suffering and he's patient. And his rod of discipline is not quickly raised. He does not, as the prophet Jeremiah says, also writing in this same context of the coming judgment. He does not willingly grieve or afflict the children of men. So I don't want anyone to come away from this morning thinking that God is a quick trigger finger when it comes to discipline. He gave the law on Sinai nearly a thousand years before this time, a thousand years before the final judgment of the exile falls. So God is very patient. He gives second and third and fourth and fifth chances. But his patience with our willful, unrepentant sin is not eternal, precisely because his love for us is eternal. His patience is eternal as we struggle repentantly against sin. But he loves us too much to stand by and watch us endlessly suffer the natural consequences of our willful unrepentant sin. And if we won't learn the lesson from sin's natural consequences, then he will eventually step in with his rod of discipline in order to disrupt our cycle of self-harm. So where do you sit this morning with respect to God's call to repentance? Perhaps you sit neck deep in the natural consequences of your sin. You've been going your own way. You've been doing your own thing. And it just hasn't been working out for you. And maybe that's a description of your entire life. Your whole life is just one big natural consequence of the foolish choices and the filth that you've been eating. Or perhaps that description relates to just one particular part of your life where you've been rejecting God's direction and his laws and his guidance. You've been going your own way, and it's made a train wreck of that part of your life. And I don't know why you're here at church this morning. Maybe you're not even sure yourself why you're here at church this morning. But perhaps you have enough sense about yourself to realize, to recognize that your choices aren't leading you to blessing, but they're leading you to harm. And if that's you, then God calls you, and I call you, to repent, to change your mind about God and his laws, to change your mind about how you've been living, 
to give up on the idea that you will somehow find deliverance and hope through the world that God has made rather than finding deliverance and hope through God himself. God has made a beautiful world, a good world. He's made a world that is glorious, and it can be for us a conduit through which God's goodness and life flows to us, but it cannot be for us a source of goodness and life. And that was Israel's great sin, and it's the great sin of the world. It might be the great sin of some here today. Trying to find our hope in what God has made and submitting to the rules and laws of the world rather than trying to find our hope in what God has made, and rather God himself, rather, and submitting to God's rules and laws. His ways are wise and good, even when he calls us to sacrifice, even when he calls us to submission and to repentance and to self-denial. Those are not the world's rules. The world doesn't call us to the hard choices. But God does call us to the hard choices. But it's in calling us to the hard things that we find the life on the other side. So turn from your sin and your self-reliance and from your dependence upon the things of this world and find your life and hope and joy in God. Perhaps you've persisted for so long in unrepentant sin and the self-harm that it has caused has become so acute that you are now experiencing the rod of God's discipline. It's no longer just the natural consequences of your sin. God has at last stepped in and has become a lion to you. He resists you at every turn. And he has become a lion to you to awaken you to your plight, and to cause you to seek him. And perhaps you're here at church this morning and you're not sure exactly why either, but maybe your presence here at church this morning is because God's discipline is having its intended effect. And in your distress, you are seeking him, which is just what he's wanted all along. Listen, God loves you. He loves you. And if he's angry at your sin, it's only because he loves you so much and it grieves him to see you continually hurting yourself. He longs for your wholeness and he longs for your health. So yield to his rod and surrender to his discipline. Submit to him. Do whatever it is he is asking of you. And you will not regret it. And that brings us to our fourth and final point, the promise of what happens on the other side of our repentance. It's God's judgment brings healing. God's judgment brings healing. Listen to these words in verses one through three of chapter six, such beautiful words. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains, 
that watered the earth. Hosea calls for Israel to return to the Lord. The same call goes out from the Lord today to us here in this place. He has torn us, but only so he can heal us. And he has struck us down, but only so he can raise us up and bind us. When we turn to the Lord, he promises to revive us, to raise us up so that we can live before him. There is life in and through repentance because repentance reconnects us back to the God who is life itself. Turning to the Lord doesn't mean that all of our troubles will go away, nor does repentance erase all of the consequences of our sins immediately. Israel went off into exile under the rod of God's discipline and some point in that time of exile, they came to their senses and they repented, but they didn't come back into the land right away. There was still a season of exile that they had to endure, but it's true sometimes for us as well when we repent. But repentance does bring us back into a relationship with the God who will one day, on that great day, at the end of all time, if not before, wipe away all of our sins and all of sin's consequences. Repentance reconnects us with the healing life of God that begins its work even now in this age. The sins and guilt that we can't wash off our hands are washed clean in a moment by the healing spring rains, the showers of Jesus' blood. And the same healing rains that wash us clean also begin to renew and to repair the damage that our sins have caused to our souls, bringing new life out of the dead places of our heart. So let us press on. Let us press on to know the Lord, even if finding him requires us to press on. Because God is not always easy to find, I grant you. Sometimes we need to press on to find him. Sometimes he's not even quick to find. But he is sure to be found. Just as sure as the dawn. And the good news is that when we seek him, he comes to us. He comes to us like the sun, like the spring showers, like the healing rain. Even when we can't find our way to him, if we call out to him, he comes to us. Surely, he comes to us with joy and life that transcends all of the sorrows and the death and the suffering that we have inflicted upon ourselves because of our sins. So if you're here this morning and you know that God is asking of something of you, but you have been refusing and you have been withholding, maybe this is your whole life, and you need to surrender your life to God and become a Christian. Or maybe you are a Christian, but there's still this pocket over here that you are hanging on to, declaring your own sovereignty over this, and you're not surrendering it to God. Maybe there's a struggle in your life that you're struggling with sin, but the reason you're struggling with the sin is because you won't follow the prescribed remedy that God is asking of you. And he's told you, you need to confess that sin to somebody. You need to 
go get some help with that sin, but you're, you're trying to do it your own way. Whatever the case might be, if you're not following what God is asking of you, then I encourage you to repent. Not because God is a tyrant and he wants to have his own way, but because he wants your blessing. He wants your healing. And he knows how to bring joy and life into your life. God loves us so much. He loves you so much. Surrender to him what he asks of you and you will not regret it. We're gonna turn our attention here towards communion, the great provision of God that testifies to us of the ultimate healing that we have. Greg's gonna come on up here with the team in a minute. We're gonna sing some songs and then we're gonna take communion together. But let me pray for us and pray for you if you feel that the Lord is speaking to you and calling you to a place of repentance. Father, we want the Lenten posture of repentance to to have its work and its way in our lives. And Lord, I don't know the story of everyone here this morning. I know that there are some that are just honestly struggling with sin and they're doing all that they know to do and they really are genuinely following you and surrendered as best they know how everything to you and they're just still struggling. Give them grace and patience to keep pressing forward and seeking you, to seek the healing that you are promising to give them. Help them to rest in the knowledge that you are for them. If there are any here today, Lord, though, who are not surrendering themselves to you, they have willfully chosen to go a different way. But they're here this morning, Lord, because there's something that you're working in their life and you're calling them to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would cause them to turn to you in repentance, to change their mind about going their own way and that they would find the life that you offer in Christ. God, as we turn towards communion, help us, those of us who have repented, to embrace with hope these healing rains that you have poured out upon us in Christ. Help us to rejoice in that. We love you. We thank you for your son. In his name we pray. Amen.